So our family really enjoys uh, sitting down and watching shows together, movies, this type of thing. We really enjoy it. It's, it's difficult um, as your kids get older because the, the, the preferences change and the age spread affects things. And many of you have gone through this. You've got kids of different ages. And to try and sit down and find something that everyone agrees on, you know, that can be difficult. But we, we love sitting down on the couch and getting the snacks out and turning the lights down and turning the sound up so that it shakes the couch because that's the proper way that's the proper way to watch things on television. And, uh, but as we sit down and you know, enjoy these things, there's this one movie trope that all of us just love. We really enjoy it. And it's that trope that happens when there is a... Uh, somebody is trying to solve a crime. They're, they are sitting there and they're, they're, they're going through surveillance footage and they're watching it and then they say, wait, stop right there, stop it right there. Back it up. Enhance. Can you enhance that? Enhance. We love that. We love the enhance because that's not how things work. Because if something's fuzzy to begin with, you can't get increasing clarity from fuzziness. They're watch, you know, they're they're watching. They're trying to solve a crime from an alley with a surveillance camera that's got to run into a VHS tape from 1984, you know, VHS recorder, and they're like, "Stop, enhance," and it gets crystal clear. You're like, "No, they should all look like Minecraft characters. This should not. This is not how this works." But we love it, and so every time it happens, we all say, "Enhance." We just we enjoy it. Our text this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter seven, and. Ecclesiastes is the kind of book where over and over and over and over, the author makes comments that make you want to say, okay, stop. Okay, stop it right there. Stop it right there. Back it up. Okay, enhance. Because this is so fuzzy to me, Solomon, what it is that you're trying to say. He, he, is, he introduces himself, for those of you who may be new, as we've been going through chapter by chapter, he introduces himself by using a word in the Hebrew, the kohelech. And that word means... Uh, deep investigator. It means uh, to be uh, a great collector, one who understands where an argument is going. Basically says he's a philosophy teacher. He's like, I'm going to walk you through 12 chapters of examining meaning in life. But he keeps making counterintuitive statements. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, this text we're about to read, uh, the first five verses of it, it's no exception. Makes you want to say, wait, wait a second. Okay, stop, enhance. Zoom in here. I need some clarity on why you would say something so shocking. Ecclesiastes 7 verses 1 through 5, and then I'm going to read verse 19. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for death is the end of all mankind, and the living will do well to take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Verse 19. Wisdom gives more strength to one who is wise than ten rulers in a city. This is God's word. So Solomon's been working through the human condition. He's been looking out at injustice and suffering and poverty. Some chapters kind of read like he's so frustrated. Life just seems like a bit of a crapshoot. 
because he's observing righteous people who, who die in their righteousness and he's observing wicked people who live long, seemingly successful lives in their wickedness. And he's so utterly frustrated by this um, that we get to this chapter 7 and he starts out with some pretty shocking, shocking statements. So we're going to unpack those this morning. And so Solomon is very wise. Uh, we learn from another book in the Bible, 1 Kings chapter 4, that he was the most wisest, thoughtful ruler in Jerusalem's history. And he composed over 3,000 proverbs, which are these short wisdom teachings, and over 1,005, or around 1,005 poems. These kind of wisdom teachings that were in exalted Hebrew prose, like poetic prose. So he's very wise, and he's looking out on everything, and he's really wrestling with these things uh, in terms of meaning of, in life. And the whole goal of Ecclesiastes, the whole reason we have this book is to drive us, firstly, to drive us inward so we can see the futility of an extremely short and fragile life and then to cascade our vision from being inward on the futility to upward to God where we'll find tremendous utility and uh, gaze on God who in a shocking contradiction of what we actually deserve offers to give us eternal life. And so the shifting from this cur- inward curved frustration of futility to like this upward place of restful encouragement as you as the mind and the heart shift from this short fragile life on earth short life under the sun to the God who created the sun as that shift happens the goal here is that there would be a tremendous sense of joy and meaning and identity in our day to day because life was meant to be enjoyed with God and Solomon's trying to help us make that shift so he does it in chapter 7 with a, a, a handful of short prudent proverbs and these short prudent proverbs if you were to unpack them and consider them they would be wise guides for your life right so they seem very matter of fact so I'll give you a few examples of things that we just read. Verse 1, he says, a good name is better than precious ointment. Okay, so let's think about that. This was written in the ancient world in a very hot region. Precious ointment covered your stench. Because without present precious ointment in the ancient world in a hot, sweaty region, everybody had a stench. So he says, a good name is better than precious ointment. And so he's teaching us that to have, to be a person of character and integrity to have a good name is better than being a person who, like wearing deodorant in the desert, is constantly living their life covering up the stench that is their lack of character and integrity. Straightforward. Makes sense. That's good wisdom. If you thought about it and said, you know, I want to align my life to that, that would be good wisdom. You can go on to verses 2 through 4 as he kind of unpacks uh, uh, some thoughts on mourning. He says that a house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. And those of you who are alive would do well to take that to heart. Okay, why would he say that? Well, in the ancient world, you were buried the day you died, right? There was a lot of practical reasons for that. So you were were buried the same day you died, but then your house was open for a number of days for mourning. Because if you're buried the day you died, then a lot of your family and your friends are never going to go and be able to to, you know, pay their respects because you're gone by the, by the time they can travel to come and see you. So you're buried the day you die, but then your house is now a house of mourning for days. 
And so verses 2 through 4 sort of unpack the idea of mourning being better than laughter. But what he is saying is that what this is teaching us is that you can become a much more thoughtful person. Much, you'll be much more thoughtful about life. You'll be much more thoughtful towards people. By crying with people than you ever will if your relationships are limited to partying with people. Well, that's wise. That makes sense. That's very straightforward. If you're, if you're willing to be a person who will sit and cry, you're going to be more thoughtful than a person who only parties and laughs. There you have it. Right? And you can go on through, you can do this for 13 verses. You can kind of unpack, oh, that's good wisdom. I'm going to align my life to that. That would be good. That's helpful. That's the wise, that's the, the wise guidance of, of God's word. But there's, there's something more here. There's much, much more here. It, it, at first, it seems straightforward, but there's some things peppered, peppered through here that are not straightforward. Have you ever been eating nachos and you get an unsuspecting jalapeno? See, chapter 7 is like that. Oh, that's good wisdom. That makes sense. Oh, that proverb makes sense. That teaching makes sense. I can align my life to this wisdom. That's good. But Solomon keeps saying things throughout here that make you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Enhance. I'll give you another example. Verse 5, he says, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. So that teaches that it's much more valuable to listen to wisdom that contradicts what you think than it is to just have idiots sing into your ear and repeat back to you everything that you already think. So do you want the wisdom of the king's chamber or do you want to live in an echo chamber? Which one do you want? It's wise. It's straightforward. It makes sense. And he continues verse after verse with these short poetic teachings. In the Hebrew, it's a literary device called antithetical parallelism. A big word meaning, do you want that or do you want that? Which is better? Basically, the whole book of Proverbs is kind of constructed that way. But, as we're going through these teachings, and I could just continue, I could have just read chapter 7 and unpacked them all, and you would have all gone home and said, wow, we just received, you know, the first 13 verses, 13 really great wisdom teachings, all of which you would have forgotten by the time you got to your car in the parking lot, but you would have said, wow, those were helpful, good guides for my life, and they would be, and you could go back and reflect on them and align your life, and it would be good. But, as we go through this philosophical footage, we have to say, oh, wait a second, enhance. Because this isn't as a matter of fact as we might think. Because if you go back to verse 1, right, right out of the gate, this is how he starts. A good name is better than precious ointment. Got it. Oh, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. Oh, wait, what? Okay. Enhance. Stop. Back it up. How's that? What, you just threw that in there? And he continues to, as you read through, what is he provoking? Why is he provoking us to look at this? How is it possible that the day of death is better than the day of birth? Right? Is Christian faith stoic and joyless? Are we just knuckle-dragging? Oh, well, just, you know, one day it's all over anyways, guys. Let's all just hang on until heaven. No, that is not Christian faith at all. If you look at the life of Jesus Christ, that does not describe him at all. And so what is the purpose of this, and how, what can this mean? And remember, these aren't simply the words of Solomon. This is the word of God. Solomon wrote it, but God authorized it. God superintended it. God inspired it. And up until now, in Ecclesiastes, he's been exploring what death and, death and life really means if all there is is this short life under the sun. And now in chapter 7, the text shifts to get, to get us to consider again what death and life means if there's a God who created the sun. And, you know, texts like this, they make us very uncomfortable. 
because we don't like contemplating death. That's why Ecclesiastes keeps bringing it up. Because if contemplating death robs you of joy and your only way of, of having a, an semblance of joy is to block out all thoughts of death, then what you're calling joy is really nothing more than a series of short, mindless distractions. And in the end, it's all meaningless, and that's what Solomon kind of provokes. But the deep, probing questions of Solomon are answered by the one who is greater than Solomon. The unsettling problems unearthed by Solomon find their solutions in the one who's greater than Solomon. The injustice of evil that seems to go unpunished, that enrages Solomon, it's all going to be brought to justice by the one who's greater than Solomon. The suffering of all humanity, right, that brings unrest to Solomon, finds its rest in the one that's greater than Solomon. And even death itself, our common enemy, that seems to be winning, it finds its answer in the one who's greater than Solomon, in the one who defeated death. Solomon says death is better than the day of birth. How could that possibly be, be true? But the one who's greater than Solomon defeated death, and everything will be restored in the end. And this, of course, is Christ alone. So Solomon has this existential crisis. He has this existential crisis thinking about his short life. But the one who's greater than Solomon said, I'm the resurrection and the life. When Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, if you're new to church or you're new to the scriptures, when Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, he was responding to something. There was a man named Lazarus who died. Lazarus was dead. His sisters were weeping. Martha says to Jesus, we wish you were here because if you were here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus goes on to say, actually, I'm glad I wasn't here because I want to show you something, teach you something, reveal something. And then he says, you know, that Lazarus can live. And Martha says to him, yes, yeah, in the resurrection. And she said, in the resurrection, like in this thing that will happen at some point that God will bring in a way that I don't know or that I don't understand. Martha says, yes, he will. He will live again in the resurrection. And Jesus says, I'm the resurrection. The reason why this is so significant, the reason why this is so important, is because when Jesus raised Lazarus from death, which he did, he was pointing to something greater. Firstly, he was pointing to himself, but he was giving us, it's like a movie preview. You know when you watch a trailer and they give you a couple snapshots of what's coming? The resurrection of Lazarus is the answer to Solomon's existential crisis. Solomon says the day of death is better than the day of birth. Solomon didn't have Jesus Jesus Christ's resurrection to reflect upon, Solomon is looking at a God who created the sun and saying, if there's something more than a short life on planet Earth, then death has to be better because the life that I'm observing on planet Earth seems to be full of injustice and hurt and pain and suffering and eventually death steals everything away in an ocean of time. So that's not good. And unless we're going to be ostriches and stick our heads in the sand and just live from one Netflix bench to the next or one shop, one trip to the mall to the next or one drink to the next, or one hit of weed to the next, because, you know, now it's legal in Canada, so 
hey, here's one more thing we could put on our list of ways to escape, right? One more thing. If that's all that there is, and I'm just living from one distraction to the next, so I don't have to think about where this thing is all headed, Jesus answers all of that when he raises Lazarus from the grave and he says, I am the resurrection. You're looking at the answer here. And it's like a preview of what's to come. Because Jesus comes and he brings resurrection because he is the Lord of creation and he's the Lord of recreation. Gives us a picture of where history is going. Gives us a picture of where your life is going, of where the earth is going. You see, if there's no God, then time itself is slowly stripping away everything. But if there is a God, and Jesus said he was God, he promised to restore everything. See, if there's no God, then death is the end of joy, death is the end of love, death is the end of all the good things you enjoy about humanity and creation. But Jesus said he was God, and he offers eternal joy and love, and his grace will raise and perfect humanity, and by his grace he will restore and perfect creation. See, if there's no God, death is the end of you. But Jesus said he was God. And united to him by grace and faith, death is not the end of you. Death simply unites you fully to the God who created you and the God who promises to restore you. And so leading all the way up to chapter 7, leading all the way up to this point where Solomon says, you know, death is, the day of death is better than the day of birth, a statement that seems to make no sense to us whatsoever. It's so counterintuitive. Leading up to this, Solomon also said something else. He said, God has placed eternity in your heart. And that's why there's nothing in the short life under the sun that can truly satisfy or fully uh, and completely uh, fulfill you. Because you were made for a world without pain. You were made for a world of joy without end and love with no horizon. You are made for peace with no vanishing point. Justice and generosity without oppression and greed. That's what you were made for. There's a chasm between the world that you want and the world that you have. And there's an eternity-sized chasm in your soul between what you want out of life and the short span of your life and what's offered in the short span of your life. And so we want so badly more than the short life that's under the sun and in a shocking contradiction of what we deserve, the God who created the sun didn't sit back and just watch us fall into a, a, a sinful free fall into suffering. Our God came into our suffering. The Bible isn't glib about death. The Bible doesn't just throw out these statements like, hey, you know what? It's better to cry than laugh, guys. Like like God is sick or something. Hey, you know what? The day of your death is better than the day of your birth. Go home and think about that dark thought for a while. No, is the Bible dark? Is it trying to depress us? No. This is actually pointing us towards tremendous liberation. Here's why. Because God isn't glib about our suffering. Our God came into our suffering. God wasn't content to leave us in our sin, just groping around like Solomon's you know, existential crisis, groping around in the dark, trying to find meaning in, in momentary happiness. Jesus came into our suffering, and he came and he offered his eternal life. Jesus Christ came and he lived the perfect life that we should be living, but we're not. And he fulfilled the law of God, which is to love and worship God perfectly and love our neighbor perfectly. And he lived perfectly the life that we should be, but we're not. And then he died an atoning death for your sin and my sin. Jesus came into humanity's greatest problem, which was death. 
Jesus Christ came to address the existential crisis of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is death. He came into it. He said, I'm going to deal with this. I know that on Monday morning, when it comes, you're very concerned about your finances and your careers and your job. You're very concerned on campus about your GPA and what you're going to do when you graduate and the state of the economy and whether you're going to be able to get a job or not. And some of you are young students and you're not even sure and you're considering a path, but you're not sure if it's going to be that path or if to change your path three or four times before you land in a place. And some of you are concerned about security and others of you stare in the mirror and you're going to think about, you're, you're concerned about your health. And there's all of these things. Some of us, it's relationships and our children, our marriages, There is no end to things that we have that we can think about that can rob us of our joy. And so Jesus comes into the reality of all of our suffering, which ultimately ends up culminating in our greatest problem, which is none of those things that I mentioned, by the way. Our greatest problem is death. And Jesus comes comes right into it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to look at it. We're very uncomfortable with it. We're like, let me have a glass of wine or two or maybe three before the funeral so I can get through the funeral. Let's only talk about happy things at the funeral. Don't look at the casket. Move away the casket. No casket, just photos. This is is modern Western culture. Glaze over the death. We're so uncomfortable with it. Jesus says, I'm coming right into your greatest problem. You drive by the cemetery and it's manicured. It looks like a golf course. Make the thing look beautiful. Make death as beautiful as possible. Don't put a big ugly tombstone on there. Put a plaque in the ground so the grass covers it so that from the street, we don't have to really think about it. We can drive past the graves and not think about them. This is us as modern Westerns. And Jesus says, I'm going to come right into the thing that you're most concerned about, the thing you're deathly afraid of, the thing that's really your greatest problem. I'm going to come right into that and I'm going to solve that for you by great grace. And so he does, and he bleeds and he dies on a Roman cross under Pontius Pilate, 33 AD. The God of creation writes himself into human history like a great author writing himself into the play so that all of the actors can understand the the greatness of the playwright. And God writes himself into human history as he bleeds and he dies under Pontius Pilate, which all of human history agrees that this occurred. And then on the third day, he rises again. The tomb is rolled away and the tomb is empty and Jesus Christ is raised The one who said, I am the resurrection, had a resurrection. Biblical history tells us this. The Babylonian Talmud tells us this. The Roman antiquity tells us this. Tacitus wrote, one of the Roman emperors in human history, wrote, hey, there's a situation happening uh, that's exploding in Rome. It's contained for the moment. What was that situation? It was the empty tomb and the body of Christ that was never found. Why? Not because 12 guys who were afraid for their lives hiding behind locked doors took the body. That doesn't even make sense. Not because the women were lying. Because if you were writing an ancient fable, you would never appear to a woman because back in that ancient world, her testimony wasn't even valid in court. Yet God of creation reveals himself to a woman giving stratospheric dignity to women that was just unheard of in the ancient world. And she gives the testimony. All of these things point to one thing. The one who said... I am the resurrection, had a resurrection, and unites you to himself so that one day you get a resurrection. This is the glory of the gospel. This is the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is not that one day we all just get zapped out of here 
and God does away with the material world. He loves the material world. He created the material world. He's going to restore the material world. When Jesus Christ rose from the grave, he didn't become a ethereal part of the universe. The resurrection of Christ teaches us some things. Jesus Christ was raised bodily, which means you and I are raised bodily. Jesus Christ said, hey guys, I'm hungry. Do you have any fish? This teaches us things. The grace of God is not doing away with the physical. The grace of God is perfecting the physical. The grace of God is not doing away with your humanity. The grace of God is per- will perfect your humanity. The grace of God is not doing away with the glory of creation. The grace of God is perfecting creation. The Lord of creation is the Lord of recreation. This is what he has done. This is the glory of the gospel. In verse 1, Solomon said, The day of your death is better than the day of your birth. How is that possible? Well, the day you were born, you cried and your family rejoiced. The day you die, your family's going to cry, but you're going to be rejoicing. The day you were born, you started on a trajectory towards death. But now, united to Christ, the day you die, you start on a trajectory towards resurrection and eternal life. In verse 19, Solomon wrote, Wisdom gives more strength than ten rulers in a city. You see, the power of the gospel of what Christ has accomplished for you It is such a strength for you, church. It's such a recalibration in your heart and your mind and your soul that now you can look back on the wise guidance of that chapter that I didn't take a lot of time this morning to unpack. And you can look on the wise guidance and say, yes, now how would I be thoughtful if I could cry with people? But you want to know something? You're not going to cry with people if you need 100% of your time for you. And you're not going to be generous if you need 100% of your resources for you. And you're not going to be the kind of person who's going to be willing to sit. You can go through the wisdom literature of the Bible, which is wise guidance for your life. And you're not going to want any of it, and you're not going to desire to walk in any of it, unless your heart is liberated by the grace of what Christ has done and accomplished and the implications of that. You see, because now, why would you need 100% of your short life when you already have an eternal life. You are now liberated and free to live outward facing, to care, to love, to serve, to bless, precisely because Christ has done it all. Precisely because you are united to the one who said, I am the resurrection. This is the good news of the gospel. That gives you more strength than 10 rulers in a city who are running around myopically trying to accrue power so that they can make a name and then one day, they get the same report card as the cockroach, D for death. The good news of the gospel liberates us from this. The good news of this gospel will do glorious healing in your heart as you go home and you wash your face before you go to bed tonight and you stare in the mirror and you think about what you got to deal with on Monday. It's real. I'm not minimizing it. I'm not diminishing it. I know you. I have coffee with you. I get what's in this room. You know, there's like a hundred or something people in this church and we're a hundred we're a hundred for a hundred for problems did you know that i don't know if you know that i mean i'm no i'm no statistician but that's we're we're like we're like a hundred for a hundred and speaking of stats you know one in one people die 
So if you have better news than what I'm telling you this morning, I would love to hear it. This is the good news of the gospel that recalibrates our hearts so that we can rest in the grace of God and desire the wise wisdom and, and, and guidance of God. This is the good news of the gospel. And so now, as children of God, as recipients of scandalous grace, having all your sin forgiven by the grace of God, having your hearts increasingly renewed by the Spirit of God, and being guided in wisdom by the Word of God, what else is there for you to do but to glorify Him, enjoy Him forever? Through tears. Not sticking our heads in the sand and saying that there isn't pain that we have to deal with tomorrow, but even in the midst of our pain, there's a pervasive sense of strength that rises in your heart. It causes for you to look on that thing and say, you know what, this is a significant problem, but Jesus Christ has already dealt with my most significant problem. He's the resurrection and the life. I'm united to him. The life that I wish I had but I don't have, I will have. All of the good and glorious things that you enjoy are being restored to their perfection. All of the sorrowful things that make you spit and cry and scream, those things are being eradicated. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why we're free now to love our neighbor, to care for them. This is why we're free now, united to Christ by grace and faith alone, to be generous, to love others, to be a blessing in the city, to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this?